I'm Zoe Bisbee, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. I want you to visualize a perfectly plump baby. I want you to see their tender pot belly and feel their fleshy folds on their arms and legs and observe the dimply tushy, oh, and their cheeks, their pudgy cheeks that seem to scream at you to take a bite. This fat baby is good. So long as the paunch and cellulite is found on a cherubic child, fat isn't so bad. It's even delicious. But as our babies age, the fat they retain or gain starts to elicit a very different response from us, from the doctor, from their peers, from themselves. The word fat freaks a lot of people out, even those drawn to the concept of body positivity. And my guest today, fellow therapist and fat-positive mother of two, Dr. Rachel Milner, totally gets it. She's here to talk to us about what it looks like to build a fat-positive home and politic, raise assertive, fat-positive kids, and take our own body-positive nurturing practices to the next level, beyond acceptance and tolerance, but rather into a space of wonder and celebration for the fat body. Rachel, welcome to the show. I thought maybe we could start with just you telling us a little bit about what it even means to be fat-positive. Yeah, that's such a good question, and I agree When you say fat positive, people pause and are trying to make sense of it because it's so counter to what we're taught in our culture. It's like, wait, you can be positive about fatness. It's hard for people to wrap their minds around it. So when I think about what it means to be fat positive, I think about being affirming of fat bodies. So not just saying like, it's okay to be fat, but saying that we want to celebrate fatness, that fatness has always existed and always will. And we want fat bodies to exist in the world, not just, oh, weight loss is impossible. So people are fat. But even if weight loss was possible, that there's still value in having fat people and fat bodies in the world to think about seeing fat bodies as attractive and desirable and to look at them in a really affirming way instead of a sort of like, well, yeah, fatness exists, so we've got to accept it. Moving a step beyond acceptance to really positivity or affirming of fatness. It's different. I mean, this idea of fat acceptance juxtaposed against fat positivity, it's a little dismissive. Fat acceptance, what will accept that fat bodies exist, but to really embrace fat bodies, fatness, and try to, I guess, radically think differently about what we've been conditioned to think, believe, right? Yeah, like challenging some of our deepest messaging. Yes. 
So what does it then mean to be a fat positive parent or a fat positive family? Like if we want to really embrace this value or at least try this value on for size. So I can talk about how I do it in my family and then things that I you know, work with clients around. But in my family, and I have twins who will be nine, the way that we talk about fatness and I've talked about it with them since they were born is that bodies exist across the size spectrum and that all bodies have value and worth. And that in you know age-appropriate ways, I've talked to them about how people are sometimes judged or mistreated because of what they look like. And that part of our job is to speak up when that happens. I read books that have you know pictures of all different size bodies. And because there's not nearly enough of those, I also were reading books that don't include that. I pause and will say, here's what I'm noticing. Like, seems interesting. Like the only character that's fat is like the bad person or like the evil witch or whatever, and like have a conversation about that so that they start to understand the ways in which fat people are represented in negative ways. And to also, we have like fat art around the house. So Mm -hmm. like images of fat bodies seen in positive ways Whenever there's like, if we're out in the world and we hear like diet talk, I pause and we talk about why it's problematic. They see me as their mom living in a fat body and don't ever hear me talking about no desire for weight loss or see me hiding my body or anything like that. And then of course, in their relationship with food, we talk a lot about eating whatever our bodies are asking for. We don't talk about food as like, you know, quote unquote, good food, bad food or healthy, unhealthy or anything like that. So it's just kind of returning in our family, like again and again to reminding the kids that fatness is something to be celebrated and honored because what they're going to hear in the world is the opposite of that. And they're going to hear that over and over again. So like the number of times I can give the opposite message the better. And it's still going to be less than what they hear in the world outside of our home. Yeah. I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing what kind of responses you get from them when you do the pause and the questioning, whether it's about the fat character or the, any kind of diet talk that you're hearing in the world, if you're getting eye rolls, if you're getting deep thoughts from them, um, you know, I have my own experience with this that we can talk about, but I'm curious what your reactions have been maybe even over the years since you said they're about to be nine? Yeah, I think because they've been raised this way since birth, they don't have any other indoctrination. Like this is just what they know from being in our house. So I don't get a lot of eye rolls, not yet. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I will in a few years, but we're, we haven't reached the eye roll stage yet. They get it. They ask a lot of questions. They will often like, they'll come home from school sometimes and they'll say like, so-and-so said sugar is bad. And they'll be like, what we talk about is that some people just haven't learned yet that there's nothing wrong with sugar. Like some parents haven't learned yet what they need to teach their kids. So they'll be like, so-and-so said sugar is bad. I guess, you know, they haven't learned yet. It's not bad. You know, they definitely notice in books and in shows, they'll point it out to me now. I don't, actually do a whole lot of pointing it out anymore because they do. I mean, we talk about 
systems of oppression across the board. So like they also notice where like sexism and racism and homophobia and all of that Mm -hmm. show up in media. One of my kids recently told me a story. He said um, that he was at goalie training. He plays soccer. And um, he said that some of the kids were teasing him and saying that he was fat. And he said at first, he said to them, well, what's wrong with being fat? And then they continued, I guess, to say that he was fat. And he then said, well, being fat, if you're a goalie, is a good thing because your belly could block the ball. And (laughs) they, I guess the kids moved on. Uh And when he came home to tell me, I could feel my reaction, like boiling, yes, like getting so angry. But for him, he like had moved on. It wasn't like anything deeper for him. And he could tell me and like, be like, oh yeah, you know, these people who think it's wrong to be fat and move on from it. I was in my own reaction because of like my own internalized stuff from not being raised in a fat positive household. But, um, for him, he was like on to the next thing. Wow. That's an incredible story. And it makes me think about, and I think I should do an episode specifically about sort of social skills in this way. But I know that one of the things that we learn, I think Ellen Satter talks about it, right? That with kids in larger bodies, it's certainly not diets that we need to be putting them on, but it is social skills that we need to make sure they have. And your son is modeling that. Like, what a great way to be able to talk to peers and to advocate for himself. And also, he's obviously really internalized your messages about the function of the body, because he values his shape and size for what it can do for him as a goalie. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear like his take on it and how he processed it in that moment. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, what we're talking about is resilience, right? Like we're talking about teaching kids resilience and they need that skill throughout their lives in all different scenarios. Right. You know, not just if you're dealing with bullying or teasing or things like that, but they're going to need to access resilience in their lives over and over. And, you know, I think what has often happened in the past and still does all the time, you know, with body size is because we still view body size as something that's changeable, even though we know that it's not, that fat kids who are being bullied historically and, you know, presently are told, we'll just lose weight and then you won't be bullied anymore. And, you know, I think that it's so important for us to remember, like, the answer to oppression is never to change the person who's being oppressed. And so, you know, what we're teaching kids, then social skills is a great way to describe it or resiliency and that it doesn't let us as adults off the hook. We still need to intervene and, you know, step in to protect kids who are being harmed. And I think you're reminding us of another important dimension, right? separate our own experience from our child's experience that you notice, I mean, the mama bear and you perhaps as well, but, and then your own stuff coming up around that, but that you were able to kind of check your reaction. It sounds like you were able to recognize that he was able to protect himself and move through it. I don't know. I could see another parent maybe projecting their own experience of that otherwise painful, right? It sounds like a painful experience, but I don't know that your son would 
would say it was a painful experience for him. I mean, would you think he would? No, I think if I asked him about it now, he would probably laugh. And I don't think he experienced it as painful. Didn't seem like it at the time. He hasn't brought it up again. Yeah. I mean, I think that so much of parenting is like writing out our own reactions and feelings and not responding from that place or Mm -hmm. at least pausing to decide if that's where we're going to respond from. And with this, it's so hard because, you know, we all grew up in a stigmatizing culture. Most of us as parents grew up in families that were stigmatizing either about our bodies or other bodies. So like we've had to learn a whole new way of approaching this ourselves. And then when it comes up for our kids to like not have all of our own stuff be the place that we react from is just so challenging. It is so challenging. And I think it's exactly where I want to go with this because, and I, and I have an example that came up recently, but this stuff comes up, whether your kid is being bullied or, I mean, I think he was being bullied, right? I mean, cause the kids that were using that word were maybe not using it as a neutral descriptor, but I mean, constantly, whether it's a kid pointing something out like, oh, grandma's fat or why are you fat? Or I don't want to be fat. Being fat so sad. Like these are real things that I've heard kids say that grownups have told me their kids have said. And we're all stymied. We're all like, I don't know what to say. I want to bring in a personal example that maybe we could use to talk a little bit about this with the fat positive lens. So I was at the playground with my kids, and this is a separate topic, but we watch a lot of The Simpsons, and there's a lot of fat phobia on The Simpsons, but it's also a fantastic show, so this is a dilemma. But they like the character Mo, and someone will call Mo and then say, like, is this person here? And he he says something embarrassing. So one of the things was, I'm looking for a huge ass, huge ass, like huge ass, right? So my kid, who doesn't even really get what this means, repeated it at the playground. So he was swinging and he said, I'm looking for a huge ass. Meanwhile, there's a woman in a larger body with an earshot of this. And I was like, ah, ah, like here I am like with this podcast and like, I did not know what to say. I I was like, well, he's just reporting the Simpsons, you know, And this woman might not even have heard us. And I genuinely was frozen. And I think I might have said something like, you know, we have to be mindful of what we're saying because we never know who's in earshot and the context. I mean, they probably didn't even know what I was talking about because I probably wasn't making any sense. And then my son said to me, you don't know that she identifies that way. And I was like, well, that's true, too. (laughs) So am I projecting this onto the This is like a very convoluted example, but I bring it up because stuff like this happens all the time in my family and other families. And if we really want to be fat positive, celebrate fat bodies, just be really genuinely inclusive of everyone, help. Like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. And it those moments as parents when we're just like, how can we disappear from this moment? (laughs) Just get me anywhere but here. Um, I mean, I think that your son is on the right track, you know, with the idea that we get to decide how we're going to talk about bodies and, you know, how we're going to approach things. And we don't do that for other people. And so like the conversations that I have 
with my kids as like, we know that we think being fat is a positive thing and that mommy identifies as fat and that's great. And we know how we feel about it in our family, but that in the world, unless somebody gives permission, we just don't talk about bodies. We don't talk about other people's bodies. What I tell them is they can always ask me questions about bodies. So it's not that they can't be curious or want to know, but that we're not going to go up to somebody and make a comment on their body because that's not our property, right? Like the other person gets to consent to those things and we don't have permission to do that. But if they ask me questions, I'm going to answer them. And, you know, I think when things like that come up, we do the best we can, (laughs) you know, like trying to think of like, how would I have responded in the moment? If I was in the moment, I probably would have done something like what you did, like just tried to like contain it and like get out of there. But now like thinking about it, um, I might say like, you know, isn't that cool that, you know, asses can come in all different sizes or, I like you know, that. <laughs> I probably would then follow up with the reminder of like, you know, we get to curse in our house, but remember we don't curse on the playground. <laughs> Because that's the other conversation we've been having a lot is like, I don't mind cursing in the house, but like other people mind cursing. So like, you've got to curse at home and not outside. But, but those are the kinds of things I'll try to say, like reminding, like, you know, aren't bodies amazing? Isn't it so Mm -hmm. cool how, you know, everybody looks different and all different shapes and sizes. I don't know if you have other examples with your kids. I'm trying to think of examples like that have come up. Well, I think this one, like, Mimi has a fat butt. It's like, well, I think she might be offended by that, but I think that's another one where in our family, I love, by the way, what you said about how, isn't that amazing how asses come in so many different sizes? I'm going to make that your quote on Instagram (laughs) or something. But um, I think that where it gets tricky, it's like if they say, oh, Mimi or Grandma has a fat butt. It's like, okay, you might just be observing that and you might know that here we actually might think that's amazing or cool or like, who cares, like neutral. But it's like a nuance, right? That like she might think it's offensive. I think like, how do you get that across? Because how could something that's celebrated also potentially be hurtful to somebody? Yeah, that nuance is really important. So what I would say is yeah, grandma has a fat butt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the butt grandma has right now. And we don't know how grandma feels about her butt because we do know that we live in a world that's not always kind about fat butts. And so we've got to remember that because we don't know how grandma feels about it, we're not going to talk about grandma's butt in front of her. There's no reason to, you know, but here in our space, we don't need to pretend it doesn't exist because if you shut down the conversation completely, you are then giving the message that there's something to be ashamed of or like something like we shouldn't speak about because it's bad. And so I think we can hold both like, yep, grandma has a fat butt And the world is cruel and we don't know how grandma feels about it. And she may have a lot of complicated feelings. And so we're just not going to talk about that in front of grandma. And 
grandma has really wonderful qualities that we enjoy spending time with her, not because of the size of her butt. Mm-hmm. I bet you didn't think you'd be talking about butts as much as we ended up doing it today. I feel like all conversations about kids somehow come back to butts. That's right. Or poop. So I think we're in that vicinity. I think what, right. It's that reminder that we just don't talk about bodies without consent. I really do like thinking of it. I was just like, we just don't. That's a consent thing. If you have permission, fine. But if you don't, then, then it's just not a great idea. It's not necessarily what you're saying. That's the problem. It's that like we don't say it. And that, I guess, would also help train kids to not get in the habit of complimenting bodies either, which I think is another, it's like the flip side of this that is, I think, even harder because that's so intuitive to kind of compliment your child or, you know, it's a separate conversation, but the other side of the coin maybe. Yeah, exactly. And I think because there's so much nuance and, you know, kids are like developmentally, they're going to be able to understand different things at different times. These are conversations that we have over and over and over again. And I remember my kids going through a phase, I want to say like maybe when they were around five or six, where like this was the conversation over and over, like, so mommy, it's okay to call you fat. Yep. It's okay to call mommy fat, Mm. but it's not okay to call so-and-so fat. Well, we can talk about if you have a question and we can say like, yes, they're fat. We're not going to call them fat in front of them because we don't have permission and that's their body and we don't comment on bodies. And then it would, we'd start again, but we're allowed to call you fat. Yes. (laughs) And we just, we would have this over and over. And I think, I think some of it was like, they were at that age, they were trying to figure out like, where do other people end and they begin and like, what are our boundaries and like the space in between us and all of that. So like, I think they were trying to get that. And then like that different people have different needs, different people have things that are okay with them or not okay with them. Um, And so they like needed to come back to that conversation many times before I think they really like understood it on a like deeper level. Yes. And that's a gift in a way to be able to offer your kids that space to use that word fat in the way that you, in a fat positive way, and also as a neutral descriptor. It's something you identify as. It's a word that you say is affirming to you and they use it. So it's like, that's great cognitive dissonance for them because then when they hear it out in the world as a slur, right? They have to hold, well, wait a minute, but mommy is fat and and is okay with that and says we can call her that, not in a slur. And that's a great tension for them to hold. And I'm aware that so many people don't have that either because they're not fat positive in their ethos or they don't have a fat parent that is fat positive and embracing of that. And so it's making me think about folks I've worked with, whether they're adults or otherwise, who do have a fat parent or did have a fat parent that was in a more of in a shame kind of internal stigma spot with it and hadn't kind of been able to give their kids this opportunity that you're creating for yours. And I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about like the shame in all of it and how to talk to kids about that or how to talk to, even if thinking if you have like a patient who's maybe fully grown person who sort of has some kind of even secondary trauma around having a parent that was having a traumatized experience in living in the body they did without kind of feeling liberated. So I'm having a lot of thoughts and questions. I'm wondering if you can run with any of that. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I have so much compassion for parents who are trying to figure this stuff out while they're also raising kids. Like, that is tough. And so, you know, I always want to like offer that compassion to parents who might be listening and thinking, you know, oh, shit, I screwed this up or I've taught my kids this or that. Like, if that's happening, it's coming from their own traumatized places and the ways that they were harmed. I don't think you have to be a fat, fat positive parent Mm -hmm. to be a fat positive parent. Like, I think it's how we communicate the conversations that we have, like, what are our kids being exposed to that is where the fat positive comes from. It's not the size of our body as parents. So I have lots of friends in smaller bodies who are still fat positive with their kids. And so I think we can easily be fat positive parents no matter what size body we're in. There's also things that all of us as parents can do right now to start to shift the conversation with our kids, even if we're still in the beginning of our own healing process. You know, like as a parent, we don't have to be at the place yet of not dieting in order to decide I'm not going to talk about diets in front of my kids. You know, so like I think there might be parents who are listening or like, I'm not there. Like I can't give up dieting. And it's like, well, you know, of course I wish that they were able to. And I know that this is a journey that they're on, but they could stop talking about it in front of their kids. And same thing with like comments about their own bodies. Like, you know, they could decide, all right, from now on, comments about my own body that are negative are not going to be made in front of my children or other children. Like if I need to have those conversations, they can be with a friend or a partner or a therapist, but they're not going to happen in front of my kids. I'm not going to comment on my kids' bodies. You know, like there's these changes that people can make no matter, I think, where they are in their own journey that will help start to shift the messaging. And then also when we're talking, like you're talking about like the kind of intergenerational trauma that happens around this can also start to shift that. I feel like there were more parts of your question. No, but I think that, you know, you're answering it, that those little moves, and we've talked a lot about those kind of what to quit doing, right? What to quit saying. We've talked about that before, but I think what you're you're answering it in a way that's helping us see how that act can help with that breaking intergenerational trauma. I think it's very likely that a parent listening um, that maybe has their own internalized stuff may have had, whether it was a fat parent or not a fat parent, that had their own stuff around this. I think you are helping us see that all the stuff we're helping people do to help their children fully bloom is actually some cycle breaking happening and that it can it can hopefully stop that intergenerational trauma or intergenerational body trauma that really happens. Yeah. I remember, this was so many years ago, that I was watching, I think it was an episode of Oprah actually, but um, there was a couples therapist who was on and he was talking about, you know, divorced parents. And what he was really focused on was, you know, when parents are divorced, making sure that they're not saying negative things about the other parent in front of their kids. And the way that he described it was like, our kids 
during these developmental stages are an extension of us. And if you're criticizing their other parent, you are then criticizing them. Like Mm -hmm. that's not what's going on in our adult brains, but for the kids who see themselves as an extension of the parent, that's how they're experiencing it. And I think there's such a parallel with what we're talking about that like when we're talking about like body size, our kids are seeing themselves in our bodies, even though we're two separate people, one, you know, we're an adult and a child, like they are still an extension of us. So like if we're criticizing our own bodies, they're hearing their body being criticized, even if what we're saying has nothing to do with them, they're still being impacted. And I think, you know, there's like where some of that like intergenerational trauma starts to happen, even before a comment is made directly to a kid. It's a great analogy. And I think it dovetails into my disclaimer. And I think you'll appreciate it as a a family. I think you offer FBT in your practice as well. Um, So this is where the moment in the program where we say parents do not cause eating disorders, right? Like we know that from research that, you know, it's not the parent is a direct link to the eating disorder, that it's multifactorial. So that's the disclaimer. But I'm using this moment to say, yeah, like these are some of the risk factors, right? So that family history of eating disorders or body image distress or body trauma that we're talking about, those do become risk factors. The environment our kids are in, right? If they are hearing a lot of that, of an over-evaluation of shape and weight appearance, So I want to take this moment because of your unique expertise to talk a little bit about what we know as atypical anorexia and sort of eating disorders that are afflicting children in larger bodies, because that's one thing that we haven't talked a whole lot about here. Um, So again, parents don't cause them. They can be tremendous protective factors for their kids. And just listening to this podcast, I think is a protective factor, but I wonder if we could hear a little bit about what that even is, the sort of atypical anorexia and kind of what this niche work looks like in your practice. Yeah. I mean, what I always tell people is that atypical anorexia is anorexia named by weight stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is atypical, quote unquote, atypical anorexia is essentially, you know, somebody who meets all the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa except for the um, percentage body weight criteria. And so that criteria isn't met. And so instead we call it atypical anorexia. What we know about it is that more people would meet diagnostic criteria for atypical anorexia than for anorexia. So it's not actually atypical at all. It's quite typical. We also know that people who, and you know, for kids who meet the diagnostic criteria for atypical anorexia, by the time they're diagnosed, they have typically suffered longer and are more medically compromised, even at higher weights. So the perception that, you know, people become medically compromised from anorexia in lower weight bodies is not true. Yeah, that silent suffering is really scary and... I mean, I find, and I'm curious if you find in your practice as well, whether it's, quote, atypical or not, restoring kids to really where they need to be back on that growth curve, there's often a lot of resistance from certainly the child that's struggling with the eating disorder, but sometimes parents, sometimes pediatricians. And I think that 
this is a really important issue that I think needs to become way more mainstream, way more widely known. I have well-meaning, wonderful pediatricians, but that will say things like, well, I'm not that concerned. She's not below the 25th percentile. And then I'll say, well, wait a minute, but she was at the 72nd percentile. Like, that's a problem that she fell off or he fell off or they fell off. And Anyway, I mean, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I want to really make this information understandable to people listening, because I would imagine that a, quote, atypical kid with anorexia might just look like a success story, according to, like, you know, Kerbo Kids or whatever that Weight Watchers app was, right? So, or even a pediatrician could could really look at that as, oh, success, you're losing weight, as opposed to danger, danger, So I don't know, for parents listening or even providers listening, like, do you have any, like, little red flags that we should really be paying attention to, especially for kids in larger bodies? I think what you're saying is so right on and so sad that, you know, for kids who do have atypical anorexia, almost across the board, some part of their story or lived experience is being praised for weight loss. You know, that in the beginning, somebody saying way to go, or a lot of people saying good job, and them feeling like, oh, I must be doing something right. And oftentimes, then, you know, it leads to like more peer approval, and, you know, access to clothes that maybe they couldn't wear before. And, you know, they're getting reinforced over and over again for their eating disorder. I think what we have to remember with this is that, you know, childhood and adolescence, is a time where our bodies grow and develop. And so it doesn't matter what size somebody's body is, if they are in the period of life from birth into, you know, their 20s that we're thinking about, you know, we're thinking like FBT kind of age, like, you know, adolescence and childhood and into young adulthood, bodies are needing to grow and develop. And anytime a body during that age is losing weight, we should be questioning what's going on, you know, that we should be at screening for an eating disorder. We should be, you know, screening, is there anything else going on for that person? Because if their weight is going down, their body's doing something different than what bodies are needing to do during that time in the lifespan. Yeah. So that's a warning, like any kind of weight loss, it's not to say you should assume immediately that it's atypical, quote, atypical anorexia, but you should give that child consideration because there may very well be something going on and that they do not need to meet any kind of standard criteria that you might find in the DSM, for example, in order to be taken seriously for a real problem. If we're looking at risk and benefit, like the benefit of screening for an eating disorder and finding out that somebody doesn't have one versus, you know, the risk of not screening and then they're suffering longer. You know, we are so much better off screening. Screen and be wrong versus not screening and then finding out somebody did have an eating disorder. And don't compliment weight loss, no matter what. If somebody is losing weight, don't compliment it. Just, you know, do not say anything positive because whether they have an eating disorder already, are starting to develop it, or maybe haven't started but are at risk, once you compliment weight loss, you're now kind of, you know, starting to like trigger that eating disorder. You're totally. putting somebody at higher risk. 
right? It's like that little dopamine hit that the brain gets that we want more of that. Like we want more compliments. They feel good, but this is a very dangerous way to chase them. Yeah. And I think the part that you were naming about like returning to where somebody was previously growing is so important. And, you know, I think rarely get pushback from pediatricians about kids who, you know, had been growing at the 50th percentile and are going back to the 50th percentile. But then when you're having, you know, I just had this come up with somebody I supervised talking about one of their clients who had been growing at the 95th percentile Mm -hmm. and getting pushed back from, you know, across the board about them needing to go back to the 95th percentile. Totally. And when just for folks listening, we are talking about that percentage for uh, weight. But for people listening, we'll maybe link show notes to stuff people want to learn more about FBT and interpreting growth charts in eating disorder uh, assessment and treatment. But certainly some kids do fall off for height as part of this sort of consequence of weight loss. But if we're even just talking about weight, you know, sometimes getting a kid back up to the 95th percentile, which may be considered, I don't know, quote, overweight or obese category, quote, um, this may be their healthy (laughs) This may be where they need to be to hit all their developmental milestones. So there's a lot of relearning and unlearning that needs to happen around this, I think. Yeah, I think like if we want kids when they recover from eating disorders to have like trust in their bodies and be able to like navigate the world without a lot of fear and anxiety, then as parents and providers, we have to trust their bodies and we can't have the fear or anxiety around what's going to happen with their bodies. So we have to let their bodies go to where they're needing to go in order to heal. And if a body was growing at the 95th percentile, that's where the body needs to grow. And if we're anxious about that, we've got to do that work somewhere separate from our kids where you know they're not hearing those conversations. Right. And then you can be the cycle breaker in that. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to let you go. But before I do, do you have a few resources to share with us uh, for people listening that kind of want to dive a little deeper into any of this that we're talking about? Uh, what do you recommend? Yeah. So I was thinking about kind of what would be most helpful. So I think for parents who are starting to try to like embrace fat positivity, want to have a deeper understanding of it want to understand like the impact of fat oppression, like they're kind of in that place of learning. I would recommend Aubrey Gordon's book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. Aubrey Gordon right, has written previously under um, the name Your Fat Friend, and all of their blogs are fantastic. So if you're a parent like me who barely has time to sit and read a whole book, you can pull up and find um, just some of their blogs, which are all worth reading. So that's a recommendation for parents. I think for one book that I have found helpful with my kids is a book called Sex is a Funny Word. Mm. Um, And it's a fat positive, you know, gender inclusive book about bodies and how bodies change and grow and develop. And it's really consent based and talks about some of the hard conversations that we have with kids about, you know, 
bodies and sex and masturbation and all of that in a really positive, consensual way. It's one of my favorite books that my kids and I read together. So that's one that I would recommend. And the other resource I was thinking about, I think that for parents who might be listening and are saying like they're like hearing this, but they're not totally bought in and they're maybe sitting here thinking like, you know, often the question is, but what about health? Kind of where often people go when they start to have these conversations. I do think that Christy Harrison did a really wonderful job in her book, Anti-Diet, pulling all the data together. So rather than going on like a search for all the different research articles, which exist in support of health at every size and fat positivity, Christy kind of brought it all together in one place. So I think if anyone's listening and saying like, you know, but what about health or, you know, it's, you know, quote unquote, irresponsible to promote fatness or things like that. Um, Or of course people can diet. I know my friend down the street who lost weight and, you know, kept it off. Like if people are having those kinds of like reactions to this, I think that um, the book Anti-Diet is a really good resource. Those are great. And I might add to all that, since you're an Aubrey Gordon fan, are you familiar with Maintenance Phase? Yes. It's a great podcast and I think does a lot of great comical myth busting about all the sort of diets. And I think Aubrey Gordon does a really great job of also talking about why we can't moralize around health. And certainly we didn't get to that today, but I'm really glad that you brought that up at the end because yes, someone could be listening to this and be like, yeah, down with all of it, but wait a minute, what about health? And I love that you're like, read anti-diet because you're right. That book really does a great job of answering that question because a lot of people have it. It's a good question. Yeah, of course, that's the question that people are going to have because that's the culture that we live in. Yeah, and I'm glad that you've named Maintenance Phase because I love that podcast. And I find it both at times enraging because of some of the, like, it's so horrible what we have done to fat people over the years, but they also talk about it with a lot of humor, which I really appreciate, especially as somebody who's doing a lot of serious work all day that like I can listen and also laugh while at the same time learning and, you know, hearing them kind of dissect some of these super harmful things. Totally. In very scientific ways. They're really very reliable, both of them. Rachel, thank you. This was great. So that's today's show. As always, please, if you're enjoying the show, rate, review this episode on Apple Podcasts, share this episode so more people can join this body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom. Mm